Okay, let's jump into the text here this morning. We are continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are in chapter 8 today. And we're going to read the duration of the whole chapter, verses 1 through 17. So the whole chapter of chapter 8. Uh, but we're going to be predominantly focusing in on um, some smaller sections. It's, in Ecclesiastes, 17 verses is, is a lot. So that's too much to go through. So we're, what we're going to kind of do is distill this passage down and kind of focus in on a few key verses. And the key verses that we will be focusing in on today are verses 10 through 13 and 16 and 17. But we're going to read through the whole chapter. Additionally, before we get to the text here this morning, I just want to highlight um, that as, uh, as Lou Allen uh, talked about, there's a shift in the way that the preacher, uh, we said, who is the author, the author of Ecclesiastes, in the way in which he begins to talk. Um, and you're going to see something where he uses this word, no. This is a shift, okay? Uh, this is a shift because up to this point, the preacher has, has said things like, what I have seen that is good is this, and what I have observed under the sun is this. And there's been kind of this um, sensory-oriented language that he has used up to this point. And when he shifts today, you're going to see the word no a lot. You're going to see it throughout this whole chapter I know this to be true. I don't know this to be true. I know this about God. I know this. That's a shift, and we're going to talk about why that shift is pretty important. Okay, But I just want to highlight that on the front end as we um, get into the Word here this morning. Um, let's go ahead and read the Word, and then we'll pray and dive into the text. Chapter 8, and if you could, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word out of respect for the Word. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will the wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. In verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun 
but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do anyone's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you this morning. We are seeking your face, seeking your presence. We come to you in worship, and, uh, and we come to you in order to, to learn and to grow. Father, I pray that, um, that you'd pour out your spirit on me and uh, the, the congregation here this morning, that we would receive your word, that our hearts would be challenged and changed, and that we would draw closer to you in a kind of reverent worship and relationship with you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I grew up in a fundamentalist Baptist church. Okay, and for those of you who don't know what that even means, like what does it mean to grow up in a fundamentalist Baptist church, the word fundamentalist used to mean about 100 years ago that you would hold to certain fundamental truths, you would hold to certain fundamental doctrines that you weren't willing to waver on. And uh, over the last 100 years, there has been a shift in the semantics and how that word has been used. And now to be a fundamentalist no, no longer necessarily means that you hold to any doctrines per se, but it's more about a strict adherence to certain standards of conduct. Um, some of you may have come from holiness movements, okay? Where, where, and it's a very similar kind of thread um, where the idea in both the fundamentalist or these holy movements is to really elevate holiness and really elevate obedience uh, as, as, as basically being the core of what it means to be a Christian. So for example, uh, I grew up in, a, in an environment where our church leaders and pastors taught me and my parents and all of the other individuals who went to the church that um, it was a sin to go to movies and uh, it was a sin to drink alcohol. It was a sin to uh, dance it was a sin to listen to uh, music that was not Christian music. And even if it was you know, labeled Christian music, it was a sin to listen to it if it had electric guitars or drums. Uh, hair had to be above the ears. I'm in trouble. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, you had to wear your Sunday best. The men of the church were expected to show up in suits and ties. And, uh, and uh, you were to be clean shaven. Uh, I can remember a pastor confronting an individual that they had a beard. Um, and uh, so beards and goatees were a no-no. Um, I think mustaches were okay. I'm, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, uh, you had to be clean-shaven. Uh, women were to wear long dresses, right? No leg exposed. Uh, pants were not allowed uh, for women. So these, these very strict, uh, it, this strict adherence to these standards. And if you didn't fall in step with these standards, then uh, you were seen as worldly. You were seen as living in the flesh. You were seen as uh, pursuing your own lusts and not pursuing holiness. And, uh, and so you were constantly encouraged to obey these standards. Um, and, uh, and so the idea of relating to God was always put through this, this filter this of, uh, of holiness, of obedience. 
right? And so if we are, and we would say that we are, a gospel-centered church, a church that holds to the gospel of grace as being central to the rest of our theology and the rest of the way in which we live, at their core was kind of a gospel of holiness, an obedience that bled into the rest of the way that they lived and related to God and to each other. And let me just be clear too, at face value, obedience is not a bad thing. Scripture's call us to be obedient. Uh, we're to obey the commands of God. But obedience was, was taught as the only way in which to relate to God. It was through holiness in which you related to God. Um, rather, than it being, rather than obedience being a response to having a loving relationship with a good God. And, uh, and life be- has taught me over the years a lot of hard lessons about the fundamentalist movement and the holiness movements. Um, and I had broad exposure to it because my parents uh, became missionaries when I was about uh, 10, 11 years old. And so what that meant for us as a family that, was, uh, that were missionaries, where they were, they were doing ministry in Santiago, Chile, Chile, South America. And, uh, and so what that meant for us is as a family, we would travel around to all of these different churches and present our ministry and if the church felt inclined to do so, they could financially support the ministry so that we could have a sustaining uh, mission uh, in, in Chile, uh, South America. And so we would travel around to all these churches. And on one occasion, we had come back, and we were on what they call furlough, which is taking, you know, taking some time away from the country, a few months to come back and kind of report to the churches that were financially supporting us what had been going on. And so one of the churches had offered us a place to stay um, in, while we were you know, back here in the U.S. And they had a parsonage, which is basically just a home that's owned by the church that's used for ministry purposes. So they had this house set up on their church property, and they were like, hey, you can, you can use this rent-free you know, to bless you guys as a, as a family. You can live here while you're uh, on furlough. And so we had spent some time there um, you know, presenting the ministry to various churches, uh, living out of this parsonage for a couple of months. And the time had come for us to kind of go back to the country, to Chile. And so um, my mom was working, I was away uh, with a church activity or doing something, and my mom was at the house kind of uh, helping pa- organize pack bags, uh, strip sheets off of beds and things like that. And there was another individual from the church that was working uh, with her to kind of help her get the house ready to go. And so uh, while they were doing all, the, all of this, these chores, this work, when we had been there for probably, I'm going to say like a month, um, while they were in the process of doing that, um, my mom stripped the sheets from my bed and with this uh, other individual present, uh, found a dirty magazine under my bed, okay? Pornographic magazine. Um, it was not mine, Okay. It was not my magazine, and, um, and uh, honestly, if, if, if I was about 15 at the time. If I had known the magazine was there, I might have taken a peek, okay, if I'm going to be honest with you. But I didn't know that it was, it was there, and it wasn't mine. And so um, it was extremely embarrassing for my mom, you know, and, uh, and so she's having this dialogue with this individual who's like, you should go confront your son about this. So that's what every 15-year-old wants to have happen, right, is to have your mom confront you about something like that. And so I denied it and, and said that this is not mine, and she believed me, but I'm not entirely sure, you know, uh, the people from the church believed it to be true. And um, 
Interestingly enough, um, a couple years later, uh, the, the pastor of that church got cancer and he passed away. And it was discovered after his death that he had had a problem. He'd had a problem with uh, hiding pornographic magazines. And so now I can only guess that at some point the pastor had forgotten one of his magazines was in this church parsonage. And, uh, um, you know, and, I, and, I've, and I've trafficked in this world of, of holiness, and there's this weird dissonance that, that, that has been highlighted where you see pastors do terrible things like steal money from a church or um, beat their family, abuse people. And time and time again, I would see these really ugly sins emerge from the very men, the very people that were proclaiming that we should be obedient, that we should be holy, and their lives in the end never matched up. And we could spend a lot of time talking about why these things happen, but today what I want us to understand is this. In verse 10, if you've got your Bibles, look at it there. This is nothing new. My observation of these things is not new. It says in verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. There's the kind of individual that has, was going in and out of the holy places, the temples, the churches, whatever, and they were praised. People admired them, and yet they're exposed in the end as wicked. They're revealed in time as evil. It says in verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, what happens is that um, evil isn't always immediately seen. It's not always evident. It's not always caught. And so when people do evil, when we do evil, uh, and don't receive immediate consequences for that evil, we have a tendency to think away that we got away with it. We fooled others, right? And there is a way in which we can have a sense that in the way in which we relate to others, is probably the way in which we relate to God. And so if I have fooled other people, if I fooled others that I've got this shiny veneer, that I am who I'm portraying myself to be, maybe I have fooled God as well, and I'll continue to be evil at my core while having this veneer of holiness. And, uh, and so the preacher in Ecclesiastes here is saying that there's a way in which the consequences of evil seem to lag behind the evil act in and of itself. To the point of where the man is buried in the entire duration of his life, he was praised. But then notice what happens in verse 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So in other words, even when the most terrible person lives a long life, there is some kind of ultimate consequence that's coming to that person. And there's some kind of ultimate reward that's coming for those who um, are fearing before God. Um, what the author is saying here really connects with me and my story, maybe yours, but it's, it's highlighting this, this uh, reality of, and, and, and kind of a struggle inside of us of 
And he says it later on as well, like where the good man does good and he gets what the evil man deserves and the evil man does evil and he gets what the good man deserves. And we wrestle with that because we all see that in life and we have to ask the question, is there no justice in the end? Like is God, is God, is there, is God not just? Where is God's justice? And the author here is saying There is some kind of ultimate good. It will be well. There is some kind of ultimate good for those who fear before God. And there is some kind of ultimate consequence of not being well that is coming to those who have disregarded God. Justice is coming, is what the preacher here is saying. Now, the interesting thing about this text, though, is that this is written long before Jesus ever shows up. The author here doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't have the Gospels. He doesn't have the New Testament. It's not here if the author even really has a clear understanding of what it means to have life after death. Like we don't, we don't necessarily know that. But what he does indicate here is that he's got a relationship with God and because he knows God and knows the character of God, he knows that God won't let evil get the last say. He knows that those who love God somehow will be well, as he puts it. And what's interesting is he also admits what he doesn't know. In verses 16 and 7, he admits that he doesn't entirely know what God is up to in a moment. In 16, he says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do anyone's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So in other words, what he's saying is, hey, listen, I've given myself over to wisdom. I've given myself over to knowing God and knowing the ways of God. And even when I've done that, I don't always know what God is up to. And the implication here. The, the, what, what he is saying, and it's, it's, it's an implied thing, but it's really important for us to grasp, is that it's far more important for us to know who God is, to know the character of God, than what God is up to and why. It's far more important to know who than what and why. That's, that's Job, right? The, that's, that's more wisdom literature. Job is never given a what or a why. His life has been totally ripped apart. Never. And what happens in the end? Does God sit Job down and say, hey, Job, it's really important for me to explain the what and the why to you? No. God reveals to Job, this is who I am. And Job's transformation isn't because he finally understands what God is doing and why. Job is transformed because he knows who God is. This, this, word, this word know, by the way, uh, is a common Hebrew word, and it doesn't exactly mean the same thing and how we use it in the English language. It carries a connotation of, of deep intimacy. So in Genesis 4.1, when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, okay, it's, there's implying a physical intimacy that's going on there. It's saying that Adam had a sexual relationship with his wife Eve, and it's using that word know. It's the same word, by the way, that's being used here. And again, this word know is about a kind of deep-rooted intimacy, not just kind of a cerebral knowledge. There's deep connection in it. So when the author of Ecclesiastes is talking about knowledge, it's not just factual knowledge, it's, 
experientially deep, an intimate connection with knowing who God is and his character. And what he's saying is that no matter what happens in life, I know that it will be well for those who love God, who seek after the face of God, and I know that it won't be well for those who are evil. How does he know this? Because he knows who God is. He knows God's character. Let me explain it this way. I know my wife, Amber. Uh, We've been uh, married for 18 years. We've been together as a couple now for 20 years. And so I know certain facts about her. That's true. Like I can tell you that uh, if I was to show up with a box of chocolates and a bottle of wine, she's not going to be impressed because my wife hates chocolate. All right? But But if I show up with a cheese platter and wine, different story, right? How do I know? Because I know my wife. I know, I know things about her. But beyond that, there's actually uh, intimacy there. And so I know her at a deeper level than just the facts. So for example, if you were to come to me and say, hey, I, I, I saw your wife at the store. She was really rude to me. She like was rude to me. She cussed me out and then she stormed away. I would say, because I know my wife, that did not happen, right? Like, you did not, I don't know who you saw in the store, but that's not my wife, right? That is not her character. That's not who she is. I know that that didn't happen. Or conversely, if you were to say, hey, your wife has invited me over for breakfast with you guys. Should I bring anything? I would say, no, don't bring anything because uh, my wife is going to have toast and she's going to have bagels and she's going to have eggs and she's going to have bacon and sausage and pancakes and a breakfast casserole and she's going to have a selection of fruit and she's going to have tea and she's going to have coffee, right? And you better, you know, just, you might as well just stay a long time because it'll be lunches well. And like, I know this about her because I know who she is and how much she likes to serve people with hospitality. And so here's what I'm saying. Because I know my wife, I could predict the outcome. Like if you got, vote, if you got invited over for breakfast, I can predict the outcome of what's going to happen because I know who she is. And the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, I don't know what God is up to and why, but I know who he is. And therefore, I can predict the outcome. I know what the outcome will be. I know that it will be well for these people, and I know that it won't be well for these people over here. This is church practical theology. This is, in one sense, it's, it's a confrontational theology, if you're someone who has put up a veneer and you've felt that you can deceive everyone else and there's, there's rottenness inside, right? This is, this is a confrontational theology of like, hey, God knows. You will be revealed. This is like, there's a day of reckoning that's coming. But then it's also comforting theology to those of us who have wrestled with the injustice that we see. Knowing, say, knowing when we see God and we know who God is, this is the character of God that it's going to go well. Okay, so there's a comfort in, comfort in this. Um, there's a Christian artist and musician named uh, Sarah Groves. Um, and she kind of captures this idea of what we know and what we don't know. 
and, um, and what we know, what the intimate knowledge that we can have of God and how it can be a comfort to us. And she does it with a song. And, um, and it's a little bit like old school CCM, like old school Christian music, but her writing is so good. And so I wanted to share this song with you guys here today. Um, and so I'm going to have the, um, them play it. And if you're on the live stream listening here this morning, I'm not sure if it'll come through on the live stream, but you'll at least see the lyrics on screen. So uh, this song's about four minutes. It's going to go ahead and play now, and then I'll come back and we'll discuss. And I don't know 
I don't know what God is up to. I don't always see the good things uh, happening to good people or bad things happening to bad people. In fact, I see the opposite, but I know God. I know his character, right? The, uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah says, I know the thoughts I have for you, says the Lord. Uh, thoughts of peace and not of evil, thoughts to give you a hope and a future. I don't know who needs to hear that today. Uh, maybe no one, but you're going to need to hear that at some point in your life. You're going to need this comfort theology, okay? Uh, or confrontational theology. Um, now, who is he talking about, though? Who is it who's going to be well, and who is it that's not going to be well? Who are the righteous, and who are the wicked, as the preacher sees it here today? Is, it, is the righteous those who are perfect, those who have done are, keep, are being really, really obedient, um, and the wicked are sinners. There's some of that, but really we know, right, our, our theology knows, and as Brad preached last week, there's none who are righteous. <laughs> We're all sinners. There's, there's no one who's good. And uh, if that's true for all sinners, then how is the preacher, if he knows this to be true because he's a wise man, how does he differentiate then between those for whom it will be well and those for whom it will not be well, um, when he doesn't have even knowledge of Jesus in the cross. Well, he tells us in verse 12, he says, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And then in verse 13, he says, I will not, It will not be well for the wicked because he does not fear before God. And the differentiating factor then is that the righteous or those for whom it will be well are those for whom fear before God. And the Hebrew word here for fear isn't this idea of horror, right? It's not this idea of quaking in your boots and like ter being terrified. That's not the, the kind of fear that he's talking about here. When he says fear before the Lord, there's two things that he's talking about. First, the fear element, this idea of reverence, this idea of awe. And then before the Lord literally means like in the presence of God, and like face to face with God. And so what he is saying here, the idea is that the righteous come and seek out the presence of God and do so with reverence and worship and awe in their hearts. And the wicked person, no matter what their exterior looks like, 
No matter how good they appear on the outside, there's something inside of the wicked that does not actually approach the throne of God, approach the presence of God with fear and with reverence and with awe and with worship. And um, there's a beautiful gospel turn here. We have a fuller understanding of Scripture, even more so than the preacher, than the author here, because we have the New Testament. We have the Gospels. And we know that Jesus came. The presence of God came and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God is with us. The presence of God is with us. And so Jesus lived in our place. He died in our place and he rose again. He's seated at the right hand of God in majesty. And someday when we die or when we're called home or when he comes to take us with him, uh, we will be called into his presence. There's a day coming when we will be called into his presence. And if that resonates with you, if the idea someday of being in the presence of Jesus, if that resonates with you, then you're the person that he's talking about here. Right? If you're like, I long to worship at the feet of Jesus, I long to be in his presence with a kind of fear, a reverential awe, then that is the, the person that he's talking about, that it will be well for that person. And no matter how good your works are, no matter how good your exterior is, if that's not your heart, maybe you're doing good works because you're trying to have a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? Like, if I do enough good things, then God won't send me to hell. But it's not really about loving God. It's not really about pursuing the presence of the Lord with, with worship, right? And so for that person, it's like, it will not be well. It will not be well. Because what makes you well is seeking out the presence of God with a kind of fear, a humility, and awe. And, uh, and for those, it will be well uh, with us. As Christians, we sing this hymn called, It Is Well. Uh, I don't know if you know the story behind this, the song, It Is Well. We're going to sing it here in a few minutes. The, the story behind the hymn, It Is Well, is that there was a man who had just gotten the news that his family had been involved in a drowning accident. And so if I remember correctly, he had lost at least his wife, and at least a child, possibly uh, several of his children. He had just found out that they, had, that they had perished. And so this man, with this news of this terrible tragedy that had just happened, in that moment of terrible tragedy, he pens the words to the song that we're going to sing, It Is Well. Crazy, crazy. And he says, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Lord, haste the day when I get to be in your presence. The sky will be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet will sound and the Lord shall descend and we shall sing, it is well with my soul. Excuse me. So our posture today, even when terrible tragedy, even when you're, when you're seeing the worst kind of wickedness in your life and you're seeing evil men prosper, and you're seeing good men crushed, when you're seeing injustice in the world, even when you see that, we can know that it will be well for us because we can have such confidence in who God is, because we know, we know our God and know that it will be well with our soul. Today we're going to take communion and we're going to remember the lengths to which Jesus went for it to be well with us the lengths that he went in order for us to be in the presence of God. When Jesus died, the curtain in the uh, temple was torn from top to bottom. And the idea there is that we all now have access, access 
to the presence of God because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so in a moment here, you're going to be invited, as we talked about at the beginning of the service, to come forward and participate in communion. And Christ, with his disciples, he took his disciples into the upper room the night before he died, and he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we come forward and we remember that Christ has died for us, that Christ has provided us a way to be in his presence, to come before God. And we want to do that here this morning with worship, with awe, with fear, with respect, with reverence. We want to seek the face of of our Savior. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. The band is going to come forward, and I just want you to sit in the reality today that our walk as Christians is to be one of seeking out the presence of God in a reverent, relational, loving, worshipful way. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to be God with us. That you, that even though we often don't seek out your presence, that you have sought us out and invited us into your presence. And Father, um, I pray as a church that we would not be caught up in a show, an external show of, of um, holiness only to be wicked in our hearts and be exposed in time. I pray that we would diligently seek your face, seek your presence with fear, with awe, with, with worship, that your spirit would draw us into that reality, um, and that our, our obedience to you is an act of worship and love, not uh, in an effort to keep you at arm's length away. We want to be in your presence. We look forward to seeing you with our eyes. Lord, haste the day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.